The scripture reading for this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 30. If you're reading from a pew Bible, that is in page 73 in the New Testament. So again, that is the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 30. Hear the word of God. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty again, nor come all the way to draw, here, draw water from here. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us and your commitment to your purpose you will redeem us for the glory of Christ. You will bring us into full sanctification, full conformity to to his image on that day of glory. And uh, I'm so thankful that that does not rest upon my shoulders to make sure that that happens in my life. And uh, I'm thankful that that even the sanctification of your people here in this room uh, does not depend upon me or upon any one of us, but entirely and fully depends upon you. But I'm thankful that the righteousness of Christ 
that's been given to us as a gift is enough to make us stand perfect and without blemish in your presence. I thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit that continues to strive with us, Lord, where we don't have the pronouncement over us as those sinners had in the days of Noah when you declared that your spirit will not strive with man forever. In Christ, we have a sure foundation to guarantee that the spirit will continue working with us and molding and shaping us to the image of Christ until that day when we see you face to face, Lord. I thank you that your love for us and your acceptance of us doesn't depend on our own lives, our own obedience, our our own efforts, or it doesn't depend on our service. It doesn't depend on the depth of our singing or the exuberance in our song. It doesn't depend upon uh, the reading of Advent or the reading even of your scriptures, Lord. It doesn't depend entirely upon the preaching or the hearing or the attending of corporate worship, Lord, it, it, it all depends upon your sovereign, gracious, and loving hand. So I, I thank you, Lord, that you look past our offenses. You, you, in Christ, have sworn that you will remember our sins no more. And uh, thank you that you look upon us as sons and daughters in your Son. And I pray that that freedom and that glory would be more fully realized in our time together in your word this morning. Please minister to our hearts, Lord. Use your word to effect change in our lives uh, so that we would become those who are satisfied with that living water of worship that Jesus Christ came to give us. Father, pray that you'd be with us in his name, that you would attend this time. Amen. Well, last week we began looking at this encounter between Jesus and this woman of Samaria. uh, This is a well-known passage of Scripture. Most people are pretty familiar with it. But um, as we started looking at last week, we noticed that verse 4 makes clear that Jesus goes into Samaria on a divine commission. He had to pass through Samaria. I believe that verse is there, Hans. Do you see that? He had to pass through Samaria. And why did he need to go through Samaria? Well, it was because there was a harvest of sinners among the Samaritans that the father had entrusted to his son to save. The father had chosen, had ordained that Jesus would save these sinners for the glory of the father in redemption. And so what was it, what was left for the son to do but to go and reap this harvest that the father had prepared for him in Samaria? And we saw how that's uh, really signaling the work that the Holy Spirit was going to accomplish through the church once Christ ascended into glory after his resurrection. Acts 1.8, the gospel was to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of of the earth, we see that same pattern being reflected right here in the ministry of Jesus. In John 3 and John 4, we have him dealing with Nicodemus, this Jew. We have him now dealing with this woman of Samaria at this well. And by the end of chapter 4, we're going to find Jesus dealing with a Gentile, calling them to faith and repentance and salvation in his name. And so Jesus had to go to Samaria in order to get these people whom the Father had entrusted to him to save. But it begins with this one woman, this encounter between her and Jesus at Jacob's well. Now, verse 10 makes clear that, uh, or verse 10, in verse 10, Jesus makes clear his intention, which was to give this woman living water. But before she would be willing to receive that water from Jesus' hand, she had to recognize how thirsty she truly was. And that's the same way that the Lord works in each one of our lives. Before we are willing and ready to come to Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has to awaken us to our fallen condition. He has to show us how depraved we are, maybe not in its fullest extent, but at least in truth, we have to see that we are needy and desperate sinners who need what Jesus came to give us. 
We will never stretch out our hand to receive it from his hand until we understand how much we truly need it. And so before this this woman would be willing to receive salvation from Jesus' hand, she had to recognize how thirsty she truly was. Now, it's obvious in this passage that Jesus is speaking about living water metaphorically. He's not talking about physical, literal water. He's not talking about a literal well that's going to spring up inside of her heart, even though she doesn't understand that all the time, it seems. We know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's talking about the state of her soul. And the early part of this discussion with this woman is Jesus simply laboring to reveal to her how spiritually thirsty or how empty the well of her soul really is. Now, this woman obviously was a religious woman. We see that at many points throughout this passage. In verse 9, she was current on the uh, Jewish and Samaritan debate uh, and was surprised that Jesus would be asking her for a drink. And in fact, the tone of her language here indicates that this was not the first time she had had a debate with a Jew. Uh, I would even go as far to say that her defensive posture against Jesus also indicates that those interactions with other Jews probably didn't go all that well. She's very on edge as she's speaking with Jesus. And she's not willing to interact with him on a friendly or cordial uh, level. She's very defensive in her posture. And then in verse 12, we see that she actually, she actually claims the patriarch Jacob to be our father. right? So the father of the Samaritan people. Not just her, but, but her, her people of Samaria. The one who gave them this land right, through uh, Jacob's son Joseph and through whom God's covenant with Abraham had been passed down to them. She's claiming Jacob as her father, her covenant head in in her relationship with God, or at least the one through whom they've received the blessing of God. Now, Jesus is going to correct that a few verses later, and we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But despite this woman's Samaritan pride and her claim to be a part of God's people through Jacob, Her life proved that her religion was simply a veneer that she was hiding behind. It was just an empty form of religion that had no spiritual power in it. So she came to this well alone, as we saw last week. She didn't come with a group of women. She came alone. She came also in the middle of the day at an odd time, signaling that her own people were treating her as an outcast, and she was avoiding them, right? So she might claim that the Samaritan people were her people, but it seems pretty clear that the Samaritan people were not claiming her as their own, right? And then Jesus in verses 17 and, or excuse me, verse 18 uh, uh, discloses the reason why there was that kind of relational breakdown in her life among her people. It was due to the fact that this woman was an immoral woman. She had already been through five marriages, which according to the most liberal thinking of the day, we maybe say the most progressive thinking of the day, three marriages was pretty much the limit of what was acceptable. And so going through five marriages, being rejected by five men, was just a badge of shame or a mark of shame that she had to wear everywhere that she went. And then Jesus says that the one that she's, the man she's living with now was not her husband, right? So there's this this covenant of marriage that this man was unwilling to make with her. He was absolutely willing to let her live with him. In other words, he was willing to use her for what he wanted to get out of her, but he was not willing to make a commitment of love and sacrificial service to her. He was not willing to agree to lay his life down for her good. He was not willing to take her in as his special and chosen bride and to care and nurture her, to nourish her, to make sure that she was provided for. That was not his true concern. And so this woman, divorced five times, a social outcast, rejected by friends and family, clearly with no other option, was forced to live in this kind of situation with this man who was willing for her to be used, but not willing to to take her as his own. That had to have been just heaping more salt into an open wound to live in a situation like that. And every time that she came all the way to this well that Jacob had given to them, half a mile away from Sychar, 
It was simply a reminder of the shame that she bore. Now, Jesus masterfully and even methodically put this woman in check by his prophetic insight that laid her life open and bare before them. Jesus got her to see that her religiosity was simply that. It was just an empty form of religion with no living water to satisfy her spiritual thirst in it. And he points to her life as the evidence that she was seeking something to satisfy her that she had not yet found. The very thing that Jesus, as God's gift to her, was willing to give her if she would but come and ask for it. Right? If you had known who you were speaking to in the gift of God, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Now, the fact that Jesus touched a raw nerve in this woman's life is proven by the way she responds. In verses 19 through 20, it says that the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people, the Jews, you people say that in Jerusalem is the place to worship. Now, in that is an implied question, since you are a prophet peering into my life the way you are, since you're a prophet, which one of us is right? Could you answer that for me? Now, Jesus is not afraid to answer that question. We're going to see how he does that in a, in a couple of weeks. But for today, what I want to do is, is notice a few things about this interaction at this point between Jesus and this woman. The first thing I want to notice is this woman's reaction. Notice this woman's reaction. What is she doing in this verse? Jesus has just laid her open. said, woman, I know you. You said rightly that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five. And the one that you now have is not your husband. And she responds to that in a certain way. What is she doing in her response to what Jesus says? Is she merely seeking him for an answer to a, to a, a religious question? Or is there some ulterior motive going on here? Something that's under the surface that leads her to uh, verge away, veer away from this topic in the conversation. Well, let's see. Jesus has just exposed her life of sin. He's laid her heart open. And she recognized that Jesus laid her open. She knew what he said was true. But then she starts asking about which mountain was the right mountain to worship on, referring to a debate between the Jews and the Samaritans that had been raging for hundreds of years, right? Mount Gerizim or the Mount in Jerusalem? Which one are we to worship on? Well, we're going to get to more of that in a couple of weeks, but you see what she's doing here in this conversation with Jesus. She's deflecting. Jesus has just pinned her back into a corner and exposed her for what she really is. It's no longer about the religious debate. It's not about your connection to Jacob. It's not about this well or this land inheritance that you have received. Woman, I know your life, and I know that your life manifests the fact that your religion is empty and you're completely dissatisfied. Hello. Just, just answer the phone. Let them listen into the sermon. Yeah, they should be here anyway, or a church anyway. She's deflecting. She's attempting to divert the conversation away from her sin to something else, right? She's trying to get Jesus out of her personal life and back into an arena where she's comfortable, which is the, the arena of religious debate. This comes up so often in this passage that you have to realize that she was well-versed in this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews, and that's where she loved to stay. She liked to argue about those things. Boy, a lot of people who know a lot of theology are nothing more than that, are they? Aren't they? Know a lot of truth, know a lot about the, the theological debatings of the day, and they like to wrangle back and forth with one another, and yet in the midst of all their wrangling and all their debating, there's a severe lack of spiritual life and vitality. This woman is, is debating. She's trying to get back into this arena where she's comfortable. And I, I want to point out, we do this all the time in so many ways, don't we? Our sin gets exposed. We know it. 
Someone else knows it. And what do we do? We deflect. Someone points out something that's true in our lives, and rather than recognizing the reality of it and conversing with this person about it, we begin to veer or steer the conversation away to something else. We deflect. We try to get the focus off of our sin and onto something else, or or most often, we try to get the focus onto someone else. Right? This happens in marriages all the time. This happens in relationships in the church all the time. We are exposed, we feel threatened, we feel like we're under attack, and then the evasive maneuvers light starts going off in our minds, and we have to find some way to preserve ourselves and get out from underneath that scrutiny. It's too uncomfortable. We deny, we blame blame shift, we distract, we redirect the focus of the conversation. Bob, did you, did you, I don't know if anyone in here is named Bob today, but I'm not talking about you if it is. <laughs> All right. I tried to choose names that no one had in here. Uh, uh. Bob, did you kick the trash can this morning in anger at your wife? Well, yeah, but Sally didn't cook my eggs right. And she knows how I like my eggs cooked, and she didn't do it right on purpose. So it's really her fault that I got angry at her and kicked the trash can. That kind of dumb deflection. We are so guilty of that all the time. And on a more serious note, I remember in evangelism very often, I remember so many times when I was out on the streets in Minneapolis evangelizing unbelievers or down in Indianapolis, that when these unbelievers would feel themselves cornered, or when they would start feeling conviction over their sin as the word was just filleting them open and just showing them the reality of their true, the true state of their heart, inevitably, they would always turn to something like the Crusades. The moment they felt themselves backed into a corner, they'd, they'd bring out what they viewed to be the big guns, right? Well, hey, what... Yeah, okay, yeah, all that's fine, but what about the Crusades? What, look what you Christians did to all those Muslims. Are you saying that that's truly the religion of God, that I need to follow a religion that would condone that? Or they would bring out something like all the suffering in the world. Are you saying that the God of love who revealed himself and this man, Jesus, you're telling me I need to repent and I need to worship him as the true and living God as proven through the resurrection of Jesus? And yet look at all the suffering in the world. You're telling me this God is a God of all power and majesty and goodness and yet he allows all this suffering in the world to take place? Or what about all the religions in the world? You're telling me that your religion is the true religion? Come on. Everyone else is right. You are wrong. Who are you to say such a thing? Or, very often, they would just bring out the simple reality of hypocrisy in the church. And say, why should I follow this Jesus when his people act the way they act? Well, all of that is simply just an attempt to deflect and distract and divert the conversation away from the real issue at hand, right? That they, in their sin, have to face a holy God. And unless they're hidden in Christ, that will be a day of sheer terror for them. You know, in Scripture, this this kind of reaction to deflect against truth, this kind of reaction, um, especially when it's self-incriminating truth that's being presented to us, this kind of reaction is fundamental to our fallen condition. We, we come by this naturally, is what I'm saying, in our fallenness. So, for example, in Genesis 3, you remember when, when God comes to deal with Adam and Eve after they sinned against him? You know what's fascinating? What's so fascinating to me about that passage is there's not even an attempt on Adam and Eve's part to own what they did wrong. There's no effort. There's not even an acknowledgement before God saying, yeah, I did that, but. Right? There's not even that. You read in Genesis 3.12 with Adam, when when God comes to Adam and says, Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? He says, He doesn't say, well, yeah, but. He simply says, 
the woman that you gave me, it's her fault. Now, wait a second. Wait a second now. God had entrusted the woman to his care. So when she fell into sin and then tempted him to join her in that rebellion against God, who was ultimately responsible for that situation? It was Adam, right? Hey, husbands, direct correlation. Direct correlation. Who entrusted your wife to your care? Isn't it God who joins together and that no man is to separate? It's God who makes a one flesh union in marriage. God entrusted your bride to you. And you are responsible to care for her according to God's will. And if you don't do that because she's not complying or she's not living with you in a way that makes it easy... When God judges you for your relationship with your wife, he's not going to be asking you, now what did, that, what did that woman do that made it so difficult for you to love her? Oh, come on, come on. You, you tell me. Tell me why. Oh, man, I feel so bad for you. You know what? I'm just going to completely overlook the fact that you never washed her in the water of the word. I'm going to completely overlook the fact that you were not gracious towards her. I'm going to completely overlook the fact that you never prayed for her or with her. Because she really did make it difficult for you, didn't she? God's not going to do that. He's going to look at you as a man and he's going to say, I entrusted my daughter to you. What did you do with her? That's what he's doing with Adam. Eve had been entrusted to Adam, and it was Adam's responsibility to keep her safe and to protect her. He left her alone to deal with the serpent on her own. That was his, that was his mistake. God comes to Adam, and he says, hey, what's going on here? And Adam says, it's just it's the woman. It's just, if you'd made a better helper for me, more suitable to me, this wouldn't have happened. Well, God comes to the woman, verse 13, and what does she say? She does the exact same thing. She doesn't say, she doesn't even acknowledge, yes, Lord, I did not trust the truth that my husband told me about you. I didn't trust the truth. I, she doesn't, she didn't even acknowledge that. She simply says, the serpent. The serpent. Now you see that, that in our fallen condition, it is only natural, especially when truth is presented to us that is self-incriminating. It is, our, it is our natural response and our fallen condition to blame shift, right? To, to, to preserve self and to blame someone else, to throw someone else under the bus, as long as it's not me, even if it's our spouses. Well, how ugly is sin, right? That's what this woman, in a sense, that's what this woman is doing. She's been exposed. She knows it. Obviously, Jesus knows it. And she does what she had had to do so many other times before. In her debates and confrontations and conflicts with various people concerning her life, in a move of desperate self-preservation, she avoids the issue and seeks to change the focus of the conversation. But you know, Jesus doesn't deal in externals. He is always drilling down to the heart. So he doesn't let it stay there. He doesn't let it stay on the surface. Now, before we move to the second point, I want to just point out something here. You know what's wonderful about Jesus is that we don't have to deflect like this whenever he confronts us in our sin. You know, we're, we, we know what it, what it is to feel fear for someone else to know the truth about us. Right? You know what it's like to, to have things in your life that, is, that, that are hidden and covered up, things that you don't want anyone else to know because you don't trust that they're going to respond to you with grace. You don't believe that they're going to understand how difficult that situation was. You think they're just going to judge you based on the fruits of the situation and cast you out. That's what happened to this woman. That's what was going on. She had fear. She had real trepidation about being exposed in front of people. Who knows how much relational trauma she had been through already? 
Her heart was closed off. She wasn't ready to open up and be exposed with Jesus like this. A lot of us are just like that. In the church, we've been so hurt by people in the church, we don't feel that we can really open up anymore. We've been so hurt by pastors and elders and leaders in the church that we don't feel that we can really entrust ourselves to their leadership. You know, the wonderful thing about Jesus is that when Jesus comes to expose us in our sin, we don't have to, re to deflect the way this woman did. In Jesus, we have real, full freedom to lay ourselves bare before him no matter what we've done in the past. Because Jesus isn't coming to expose that sin in order to shame us. He's not coming to point to us and say, ha-ha, ha-ha, look what you did. See, I'm better than you. That's not Jesus. When Jesus opens our lives up and he exposes sin to us and he makes us see how bad we really are, that Seth is bad, he's really, really bad. When Jesus comes to show me my sin, he's not doing that to shame me. He's doing it to save me. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that with him, we don't have to question his motives in pointing sin out in our lives. Boy, someone else, a brother or sister in this church comes to you and says, hey, I saw this in your life. I'm not sure that this is really all that good. As soon as that person comes, what are we doing? We're building up our wall. We're trying to defend ourselves. Preserve self, right? Find an excuse. Try to get out. Don't answer this. Blame it on something else. Because we don't trust whether the person, maybe sometimes we just don't trust whether the person is bringing up it with, with proper motives. We never have to be concerned about that with Jesus Christ. We don't have to hide anything. We can be fully naked and exposed before him and absolutely trust in his character that he is not going to cast us out and shame us. He's going to work with us. He's going to deal with us patiently and gently. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You come to Jesus, and you, you come with your stinking, smoldering wick. You ever smelled a wick that's burning with no oil? It stinks. It smells really bad. You bring in your smoldering wick to Jesus, you bring it up into his presence, and you're worried about how he's going to respond. The word of God tells us that he's not going to snuff you out. He's not going to cast you down. He's not going to throw you away. He's going to trim that wick. He's going to fill you with fresh oil and he's going to relight you so that you can shine for the glory of his name. You feel bruised. You feel broken. You feel battered by the things in this world, by your own failings, by your own stumblings and sin, the things that you knew you swore you were never going to do again. You've done it all over again. And you come to Jesus with it. Jesus looks at you and you're wondering, Lord, are you going to cast me out this time? Is it this time? Was this the last time that you're willing to be patient with me? And Jesus looks at you and says, oh, son, daughter, I love you. I know what you are. I knew what you were when I saved you. When I died on the cross for you, I knew the fullness of your depravity. And it didn't stop me then. Why do you think it's going to stop me now? We don't have to be afraid to come to Jesus and be exposed before him. We can come to him knowing that as our savior, he's not going to shame us. We can trust in his character. We can believe in his love and we can be unafraid to confess to him all that we are. You know, this is, what's, this is what 1 John 1, 8 and 9 is getting at. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at that. God doesn't want you to hide your sin away and pretend like it doesn't exist. If you do that, he says, you're just deceiving yourself and you're proving the fact that the truth is not in you, no matter what you profess. But if you will simply bring your sin if you'll simply own it, if you'll simply confess it, agree with me about your sin and your condition, I am faithful to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and I'm just to do it through the blood of Christ. Amen. Eger, is that you?
Amen, brother. Yeah, you and I are tracking. Yeah. Praise God. This woman doesn't trust Christ enough to open up like that. She's still stuck in that fear of John 3.20, right? Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds would be exposed. Now, she doesn't come to the light because she doesn't trust Jesus enough to be exposed like that. Rather, she deflects. Now, secondly, notice how Jesus responds to her reaction. He does not bring the focus of the conversation back on her sin that he's just exposed. He is willing, actually rather, he's willing to move forward with her and go where she wants to go. You see this in in John 4.21, where rather than saying, no, 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 we'll talk about Jerusalem and Gerizim later, but let's get back to this issue about your sexual immorality. Rather than doing that, Jesus actually begins to interact with her question. And we'll look at how he answers that in a couple weeks. But just look what he does there. This is, a, this, this is really significant because it shows us Jesus' purpose in bringing up sin and exposing what's hidden under the surface. Jesus didn't expose this woman to attack her because of her sin. If if that was his purpose, then he would have brought the conversation immediately back to her sexual immorality. He would have immediately said, nope, we're not going there. We're not talking about these religious debates anymore. All the things that you want to discuss, we're not going there. We're coming back here where I want to talk. Jesus doesn't do that. And it shows us that in exposing her sin, it wasn't to attack her. Exposing her sin was so that he would save her. She wanted living water, right? She said, sir, give me this water. Well, this is step one. Exposing her true spiritual state and showing her her thirst. But here's what I want to point out here. In Jesus' response, once her sin is exposed, and it's clear that she has recognized it for what it is, Jesus doesn't keep pressing his thumb into the wound. She shifts the focus of the conversation, and amazingly, Jesus is willing to go with her where she wants to go. In other words, he doesn't keep bringing her back into her shame and into her sin. He doesn't keep rehashing over and over again this issue that he has exposed. Actually, as the passage makes clear, he doesn't even bring this issue up again at all. She wants to move on, and he's willing to go with her. Now, that proves that Jesus' purpose in exposing her sin was not simply to shame her or deride her. He pointed to it only to show proof of her spiritual thirst so that she would be driven to come to him and ask for living water. Beloved, I hope it's not too much for me to extract a general principle out of this for us to understand. We see in Jesus' dealings with this woman something glorious about the way Jesus deals with sin in all of our lives. There's wisdom here. There's wisdom for evangelism and interacting with the lost out in the world, right? Once once something has been exposed, once a sin has been acknowledged and dealt with, you you don't keep hounding them about that sin. You move forward. You move on. You just... You struck a chord in their heart and you want to let the sound of that resonate in their heart on its own. You don't have to strike it again. God's already done that. All right, so there's wisdom for evangelism and dealing with the loss. We're not trying to just dig in further and further into some issue that's been brought up with a lost, an unbelieving person. We want to follow Jesus' example. But there's also wisdom here for us to take to heart in relation to the way that Jesus deals with sin in the life of a believer. This section was really difficult for me to write, all right? I rewrote it five times, which is why I'm not typed out today, all right? It's this section, which is why I'm not typed out today. I hope you can follow me well, but please listen. When Jesus comes to deal with your sin as a believer, 
as someone who truly trusts in his saving work, when Jesus comes to deal with your sin, he does not keep digging in and pressing in and rehashing what he's already exposed. That is, Jesus doesn't keep cutting where the necessary cut has already been made. That would be a pretty poor surgeon, right? You go in for surgery and the, they make the initial incision and what does that doctor keep doing? He just keeps cutting and he keeps cutting and he keeps cutting and he keeps cutting deeper and deeper down. That would not be very good. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't keep cutting where the initial and necessary cut has already been made. Where what's underneath is already exposed, he doesn't try and dig it up all the more. Jesus will expose your sin. He will crush you as much as you need to be crushed under the weight of your sin. He will bring you to the point where you recognize it as sin. But once you see it, once you acknowledge it, Jesus doesn't keep striking with his hammer upon your conscience. He doesn't keep beating you down and berating you because of your failure. He doesn't hold it over your head and say, hey, remember when you did this? Remember? Remember when we talked about this? Remember that? 20 years ago? This is difficult for some of us to, to understand because some of us grew up with parents or with family members or friends who would do that. Right? You mess up and they just keep beating you over the head with your failure. You stink. I can't believe you did that. I don't know that I can ever forgive you for what you did. Yeah, you mess up. They just keep beating you over the head with it. Even after you have owned what you did and, and, and even have apologized for it and have tried to move on, to move past it, to reconcile, to be at one again, just let it go. You've tried to do that. There were people in our lives that won't let us do that. Maybe you are one of those people. You don't, you don't let go of grudges. You keep record of offenses. Right? That's not love. First, first Corinthians 13. Or maybe you are like this with yourself. You just keep beating yourself over the head with, with, with your own failures. Things that you just can't believe you've done. You won't let yourself move past it. I'll tell you what, it's a really dangerous combination whenever you won't let yourself move past it and other people in your lives won't let you move past it either. Probably, that is what this woman had experienced many times before and what she was struggling with even here. But... My friends, we need to recognize that Jesus isn't like that when he deals with us. Once the Holy Spirit has awakened us to recognize our sin, and once he has brought it to light and we see it for what it is, that's enough. He doesn't point out our sin to us just to smear us with disgrace and to humiliate us under it. He's after our souls in this encounter. And he magnifies our sin for the sake, for the sole purpose of moving us to take hold of him. That's it. So when we experience conviction over sin, assuming that we're not ignoring it, and assuming that we have a sincere heart that recognizes it as sin and seeks to turn away from it from the, for the glory of Christ, assuming that, when we experience conviction of our, of, over our sin and we repent, and yet find that the guilt and the shame of that sin continues to strike at our conscience. It just won't let up. It doesn't matter how much we confess it to the Lord. It doesn't matter how much we try to labor towards repentance in relation to that sin. When that guilt and that shame and the weight of it just won't let up. Beloved, you need to recognize in that moment that that is not Jesus doing that to you. That is the devil. That's the, the accuser of the brethren, right? That's what he's called. He's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them night and day. Now, since the ascension of Christ, Revelation 12 makes clear that he's been cast out of heaven. He can no longer accuse us in the presence of God anymore. 
But Revelation 12 makes clear what he does after he's been cast out of heaven. What does he do? He goes forth to make war on the saints. In other words, he brings all those accusations to bear upon us in our daily lives. He doesn't stop accusing, he just changes the audience. Before he was accusing us to God. Well, now the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is seated on the throne. What does it matter if he accuses us before God? The answer is right there in his face. He's not there anymore. But he is right here. He's right here. He is accusing you day and night. Trying to keep us buried under a sense of our failure and shame. Beloved, you need to understand that that is not Jesus. You need to understand what we're seeing here in his interaction with this woman so that you can learn how to walk with Jesus out of your sin and into the pastures of gospel grace. You need to learn this about Jesus so that you experience the freedom of moving beyond your sin. The very sin that God says to you, I have cast your sin behind my back. I've buried it in the uttermost part of the sea. It's as far as you remove from the east is from the west. Like There is nothing that is ever going to come up between you and me again in relation to your sin. I have chosen not to remember it. You know, in order for you to, to experience the freedom of that and the power of that for your life, You have to recognize this about Jesus. Rather than burying you in your sin and leaving it, or rather than burying your sin and leaving it unaddressed, or being buried by your sin under guilt and shame, you need to recognize those kinds of attitudes don't come from God. You need to learn to recognize that and you need to move on with Jesus. So here's the important principle, okay? When it is Jesus who is addressing sin in our lives, that will always be accompanied by a sense of hope. When Jesus comes and exposes sin in our lives, that will always be accompanied with hope. There won't be despair when Jesus is the one bringing sin to the surface and bringing it to our attention. You know what I mean by bringing it to the surface. Exposing what's underneath. When he does that, there's there's not this sense of hopeless despair, right? When Jesus comes and makes known our sin to us, it will always be accompanied by assurance and by a, a, a confidence that we know that as we turn from that sin, Christ will forgive us and receive us. That's how you know that Jesus is the one addressing sin in your life. When it's the devil pointing sin out in your life. That that acknowledgement or that recognition of sin will come with shame. It will come with despair that seeks to devour you in, in that despair. There won't be any hope. There will only be doubt cast upon the goodness of God and on His willingness to compassionately forgive those who come to Him. Have you ever struggled with sin like that? Have you ever struggled in your relationship with God like that, where you've been so deep in your relationship with the Lord that whenever you sin, you wonder, oh no, have I disrupted, have I rocked the boat for the last time, and I'm going to get dumped out? That kind of fear does not come from Christ. When Christ addresses sin, it's with a redemptive purpose and with hope. Some of us have been sitting under the devil's influence for too long. And much worse than that, we've even been conditioned to think that the activities of shame and guilt and doubt and despair are actually the workings of God. We need to take up the sword of the Spirit and we need to begin waging war against the lies, don't we? This is what it means to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. It means that even in the midst of your despair and even recognizing your own sin, you're still willing to take up the gospel and wage war against it. The fullness of the gospel, the hope, salvation and redemption in Christ. That's just what Jesus promised. That's what the Lord promised in Zephaniah 3, this great work he was going to do among uh, or under the work of the Messiah. 
as he, it says in verse 8 there, as, I'm just going to run through this, as he, as he pours out judgment upon the nation, you actually, upon the nations of the earth, you actually learn in verses 9 through 11 that that, that that judgment that God pours out on the nations is a judgment that leads to their salvation. So he gives them a new tongue, he gives them a new mouth to praise him, and then it says, I believe it's in verse 11, where he says that in that day when I redeem you, you will feel no shame because of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud and exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Verse 12. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. Look at that. It starts with God dealing with their sin, converting them, and bringing them to the point where they no longer feel shame over their sin but put their confidence in the Lord. That's what Jesus is doing with this woman right here in Samaria. He's bringing her to the point where she would feel no shame over her sin, where she would be redeemed and be be given a new nature to trust in and worship the Lord so that she would put her hope not not in herself or in her false religion or a false idea of how to be connected with God, but rather to put her hope fully and exclusively in the name of Yahweh as the God of her salvation. That's what Jesus is doing here with this woman. Now, thirdly, as we try to wrap this up a little bit, that is Jesus' purpose in addressing this woman's sin, but notice her root problem. Despite Jesus' intentions in interacting with this woman, she deflects and she tries to change the focus. Now, you know what's, what's ironic about that? is that what this woman does to try to deflect the conversation away from her personal life actually brings this discussion to focus in on her root problem. So she tries to get away from from dealing so personally with Jesus and actually steps right into a trap, right? Where she wants to take the conversation, Jesus is more than happy to go there because it is getting to the root of her problem. She thought that she was moving, moving the conversation back to safer ground. You know, let's debate theology, let's debate religion. But she was actually unwittingly directing attention to the real issue. Her real problem was not her adultery. Her real problem was not the five failed marriages. Her real problem was not her broken relationships with her family or with her community. The, the rot in her relationships was just the fruit or the evidence of a deeper rot in her soul. As Jesus is going to make clear in verses 21 through 24, at the heart of her problem was the fact that she did not know what it meant to live a life of true worship to God. We can see that clearly in verses 22 through 24. In these three verses, worship appears seven times. And that's not always important to, 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 to notice, but here Jesus is making a point to this woman. Her real problem was not her relationships, was not her lack of understanding about which mountain to worship on. Her real problem was a lack of true fellowship with God. It was a lack of true, spiritual, satisfying worship of God that was her main issue. That is what is at the heart of her sin problem, and that's at the heart of all of our sin problems, too. You know that. At the heart of your problem, all of your sin problems, is a lack of fellowship and communion with God. It's a lack of understanding how to live and walk in a worshipful life with God. A lack of true, real, spirit-filled fellowship with God experienced in the life of worship. A person who does not have that will always be seeking to satisfy that somewhere else. That satisfaction of worshiping with God. That's the general principle of Romans 1. Just stay with me. We're We're almost done here. That's the principle of Romans 1, 125. 
It speaks of those who have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image and the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's verse 23. Then verse 25 explains what that means. It means that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, the point there is that if you are not living a life that glorifies and worships God, it does not mean that you are not living a life of worship. If you are not living a life of worship to God, you are living a life of worship to something else. I remember sitting down on a cruise ship with a guy, uh, Jamie and I were having dinner with this couple and we started talking about the Lord with them and he was obviously not a believer, he didn't really want to talk about it, but I went right for the jugular here, right? I said, he says, well, I'm not a very religious person. I don't worship anything. And I said, sir, that's actually not true. You're, you're a very religious person. You actually worship something that you don't recognize. You worship yourself. He was very offended by that. But I said it in love, okay? And I said it with gentleness and in a good tone. Don't judge me, all right? You weren't there. <laughs> But no, he was very offended by that because he had never recognized, he actually couldn't even comprehend what I was trying to say. He had never recognized that all of us live lives of worship. The question is, what do we worship? We either are going to worship and serve the Creator who is blessed forever, amen, or we are going to worship and serve the creature where there is no blessing and there is no satisfaction. You know, God created us with this internal longing, this yearning, an inner compulsion to worship. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's as much a part of us as is our DNA. It's as much a natural reflex of our soul as breathing is a natural reflex of our bodies. We were created by God to worship. We must worship because we were made to worship. And when that, when that inner longing to worship God is not being satisfied in God, we will always seek to satisfy that longing and yearning somewhere else. But those things will never satisfy. In other words, whatever else we might divert our attention to or, or, or to devote our worship to in the creature, creaturely realm, it's never going to scratch the itch that God has planted in our soul. Right? So this is Ecclesiastes 3.11, right? That God has put eternity in the hearts of man. Why did God put eternity in the hearts of man? Why is there the sense of the eternal in the heart of man who is not eternal? It's so that man would be satisfied in the one who is eternal, right? That he would always be driven internally to seek after the one who is eternal. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is the folly and the foolishness of someone who has eternity in their heart seeking to satisfy that eternal compulsion with things of this world. It's living life under the sun. You'll never find satisfaction there. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. What's the end of the matter? Fear God and keep His commandments. Go to the one who put that eternal craving and that yearning and that longing in your soul. Go to him and have it satisfied. Because there's no answer for it in the world under the sun. Augustine said this so well. You guys have heard this. Thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are what? Restless. Until it finds its rest in thee. Because God has made us for himself, he made us to be satisfied by nothing other than himself, right? And until we find that rest and that satisfaction in God, we will always wrestle and struggle against dissatisfaction in ourselves, this, this restlessness within us. We'll never find peace. That's what, you know, that's what sinners are seeking, Right? That's what all of us were seeking in our lost condition. We were seeking after peace. We were seeking after real, tangible satisfaction. And most of us came to the point where we recognized that there was no satisfaction in the things we were pursuing. There was no satisfaction for me in living a profligate life. None. I just had to go further and deeper. 
There's no satisfaction in the bottle. It just leaves you empty and feeling nasty. There's no satisfaction in drugs and pills. There's no satisfaction in pride, self-attainment. Self, uh, There's no satisfaction in jobs and career. You, you, you know that. You went to college. Those of you who went to college, you got your degree, you started your career, and you found out in the midst of your career, wow, is this it? Is this really what people are living for? And then you think, well, no, it must not be that. It must be retirement. So you start living for retirement. You start piling away that money for that day of paradise when you can finally exit the working class people and you can go sit on a beach and do nothing for 20 years. That's, boy, that's life. I'll tell you what. And then you get to that point and you realize, man, this, this really isn't what I thought it would be. Is there, is there not something more to life than sitting on my couch and watching a football game or binge watching some television show? Is there, isn't there something more than that? There is, and it's God. God made us for himself. And just like this woman, until we find our rest in God, we will live restless lives pursuing sin. It is a life of true fellowship and spiritual worship of God that Jesus came to give this woman. That's the living water that she needed, right? Her life proved that she needed it, and Jesus interact oh, please get this. Jesus' interactions with her proved that he was willing for her to have it. <laughs> That's good news. That's really good news. Jesus is willing for us to have living water and to receive it from his hand. The question is, will we come to him to receive it? My friends, what about you? Are you restless or are you satisfied? Are you unnerved in life in this world and still craving and seeking after some purpose, some meaning, something that will give you a sense of satisfaction? Or have you found it in God? I've been asking myself that same question, and I've been trying to answer it honestly and uh, for, for myself. And you know where the answer to that question is going to be found for each one of us. The answer to that, to that question is not going to be found in our profession of faith. The answer to that question is not going to be found in our ability to spout out doctrine or to enter into theological debate. The answer to that question will be found in the outward fruit of our lives. What we do, how we live, our actions, that reveals what we truly believe. And it also reveals what we truly experience in our relationship with God, despite what we might profess to experience in our relationship with him. This woman had a life of broken relationships, but she was professing to know God. Jesus comes and points out to her, your life actually proves that your profession is empty. What, does our what do our lives reveal about us? As we end, this is the good news to keep in mind, no matter what we discover about ourselves, because things are always going to appear worse than they actually are for a true believer. Maybe Let me take that back. Maybe for some of us, things won't appear as bad as they actually are, and that's a shame. But regardless, whatever we find in examining our lives, the good news is that no matter who we are and no matter what we have done, whether we are a despised Samaritan woman or a religious hypocrite, whether we are shame-filled or guilt-ridden or whether we're walking on the mountains of pride, this account proves that Jesus stands ready to receive all who will come to him and to give living water to satisfy all who will ask him for it. And so no matter who we are, let's resolve this, that we will come to Jesus and we will receive this soul-satisfying water from his hand, no matter who we are and no matter what we've done. We'll take him at his word and we will come receive the fullness of life from him. Let's do that together.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of Christ and we thank you for the life that he's given us. Thank you that you have purposed to redeem us for yourself and that we will be satisfied in the fullness of all that you are in that day of glory. Lord, give us continual taste of the glory that is to come as we sojourn with you in the world that is. Lord, we look to Christ and we long for his coming. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Let us drink of of the fountain of living water in the age that is to come. Father, you've given us grace in Christ to taste of that water now, and it is satisfying. We look forward to the fullness that's yet to come. We pray that you would bring it to pass and help us live for the glory of your name in the present. We ask this in Jesus' name, Father, amen. Amen, amen. Would you hear the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21? Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will by working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May you go forth being built up by his grace and power, living lives for his glory. Amen.